as she was coming in this uh, morning, Elaine Holmes stopped me and uh, handed me um, a copy of today's Courier Times, which has a big old article about Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church uh, and Fellowship Presbyterian Church, the, the Brazilian church plant that's going on. So uh, go out and get some copies of this. Uh, get one for me, too. Uh, I'll have to find out where they are. So this is the December 25th issue. The, the front page headline, Brazilian Immigrants Find a Home at Church. Who stands before you when you stand before God? That's the lead. Inside the Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, a pastor from Brazil is preaching in Portuguese to Christians from the Philadelphia suburbs and recent immigrants from South America. So read that article. Uh, go out and find that uh, when, you, when you leave this place. Uh, this morning, our second reading is from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that as we gather around your word this morning that you would send us your Holy Spirit so that these words which were inspired by your Spirit, that they might make sense for us this day, uh, that they might become clear to us this day. We thank you that your word has been written down for us and preserved through many generations. We thank you that your Son, who is the Word of God, came into this world to make himself known uh, to us and to seek and to save those who are lost. We pray this morning that uh, you would be present with us in a rich and in a powerful way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So during uh, the Advent season and during Christmas time, we tell and we retell the stories that surround uh, the birth of Jesus. 
There are two accounts in Scripture. Matthew's Gospel gives us two long chapters, um, and Luke's Gospel gives us two long chapters as well. In those accounts, we have genealogies, and we have angels, and we have prophets, and we have uh, shepherds, and we have more angels, and we have a manger, and wise men, and a star. We have the engaged but still virgin mother of Jesus, and we have her betrothed, Joseph, who does not abandon her in her embarrassment, but stands with her, recognizing that this unexpected child is from God. And we have some extended family, Elizabeth, a cousin of Mary, and Zechariah, her husband, and their son, uh, John the Baptizer. We also have the terrible story of King Herod, who slaughters innocent baby boys in Bethlehem in a vain attempt to kill a potential rival to his throne. We have these stories of the birth of Jesus, and certainly Jesus is the most famous person who was ever born. Christmas, his birthday, is the largest celebration on planet Earth. But while Jesus was a famous historical figure, and while he was as noteworthy a man as, I don't know, Julius Caesar or Socrates, we Christians don't celebrate his birth once a year. We don't, we don't sing his praises week in and week out simply because he was historical or he was noteworthy. For us, as Christians, Jesus is important not because he was historical. We celebrate Jesus. We sing his praises day in and day out because he was eternal. And to be eternal, in some sense, is the opposite of being historical because to be eternal is to be outside of time, unlike history, which is all about time. Time is about things coming to, to be and things passing away. Things in time are temporary. But we as Christians are interested in Jesus not because he is temporal or historical. We're interested in him because he's eternal. Now, of course, we can talk about, we have language to talk about eternity past and eternity future. If we think about today and then tomorrow and then in our imagination picture days going on forever and ever we have this idea of eternity future the technical term for that however is not eternal but sempiternal things which are sempiternal begin at some point in time and they just keep going on forever and ever those of you who remember your grade school mathematics the sempiternal is like one half of a number line or, or, a, or a ray. It begins at one point, and then it continues in one direction forever, at least in the imagination. We call that sempiternal. If you are to live forever, and that's what the Bible says will happen to you, then you are sempiternal. You are a ray of life that begins at your conception and that never stops. It goes on living and living forever and ever. Jesus, however, is not sempiternal. 
Jesus did not begin at some point and then just continue. Jesus is what we call eternal. And that, to use the image from our grade school mathematics, Jesus is like the whole number line, which goes to infinity backwards and to infinity forwards. Now, while it is possible to think of something as starting at one point and then continuing forever into the future, it is not possible to think of something as existing now and having had its starting point at an infinite past distance. Because you will, in your thinking, never get back to the point at which the thing began and so the thing never begins. Which is why eternal things are simply outside of time. They are not on the number line. Jesus was and is eternal. His birth in Bethlehem was the point at which a person who was outside of time entered into time. We call that the incarnation. Eternal God became a temporal human being. Don't ask me how it happens. I don't know. But that's what we mean when we say that the Word of God was made flesh. Now, I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself here because what I want to point out to you people who got up on this very cold Christmas Sunday morning to come to church and you were just here a couple of hours ago anyway, what I wanted to point out is, is that while Jesus is historical, as Christians we're not primarily interested in his historical being. I'm not saying that the historical stuff is unimportant. But if the historical stuff of Jesus were not connected to something eternal, to something transhistorical or superhistorical, then Jesus would just be a footnote to history. As it turns out, Jesus is not a footnote to history. Jesus is the axis on which all of history turns. He is the axis on which history turns because Jesus is eternal. Our gospel reading this morning was from the Gospel of John. We read the first 14 verses, very familiar verses to you. And you may have noticed that in these first 14 verses of his gospel, John never bothers to mention any of the historical facts connected with the birth of Jesus. There are no angels, there are no shepherds, there are no wise men, there's no manger, there's no star in this account. If John's gospel had been the only gospel, there would be no Christmas pageants, there would be no Christmas carols, there would be no Christmas because John wasn't interested in the historical details of Jesus' birth. He would have known those details. He was, after all, part of Jesus' inner circle. But for John, they're just not that important. John's account, John's gospel, begins outside of history. It begins in the eternal past. It begins with this quote, in the beginning. Now, the only other place where that phrase appears in Scripture is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, it appears two other places, but they're quoting Genesis 1.1. In a sense, in the beginning is the start of time because 
time begins with the creation. In the beginning is as far back as we can push our imagination in the sequence of events that have led up to today. But in John's accounts, notice that Jesus already was in the beginning. Jesus, who is the Word of God, did not start in the beginning because he already was in the beginning. Jesus, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, was before time began, was before the world began. In fact, Jesus was and existed as long as God ever was or existed, which is eternally, outside of time, before there was time. Jesus was. The reason Christians are interested in Jesus is not because he was an interesting historical figure. The reason we Christians are interested in Jesus is because he was before there was time. That's what makes him important. And that's what makes him different from a mere prophet. John, who writes the fourth gospel, was a disciple of Jesus for three years. He was present at the Last Supper. In fact, he was the person sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He was present at the crucifixion. He met the resurrected Jesus. The Bible calls John the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was a very special disciple. He was, in some sense, the exemplary disciple And of all of the disciples, he is the only one who wasn't martyred. He was the one who lived longest. When John writes his gospel, and others had already written gospels before he wrote his, when John writes his gospel, he does not focus on the historical circumstances of Jesus' birth, which are wonderful and interesting, but rather he focuses on what is happening outside of time with Jesus. Sure, there is stuff happening in Bethlehem and Nazareth and all of that, but that's not really what's ultimately important. What's important is deeper and older than that. Let's listen to John for just a second here. He writes, in the beginning was the Word. Now, John, as this section unfolds, will show us that that Word, in fact, is Jesus of Nazareth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There is some kind of fellowship or camaraderie. There is some kind of communion between Jesus, the Word of God, and God himself. And the Word was God, we're told, which is very explicit, making it very clear that Jesus is not merely a prophet, but that Jesus is God himself. Jesus wasn't just a nice guy who told parables. He is God, which is why we as Christians are interested in him. We don't simply admire Jesus. We worship Jesus. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. And this phrase, in the beginning, is some kind of way of naming the time before time, the time before the start of everything. Jesus was there when creation began, and that means that Jesus himself is not a created being. Jesus is not the first creation of God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. Through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, 
nothing was made that has ever been made. So who is the creator? Well, it's Jesus. Who made the universe? Well, Jesus. Is there anything that has ever been made by someone else besides Jesus? Well, no. This is John's retelling of the Genesis creation account. This is John's version of the first and second chapters of Genesis. Who made the word? Who made the world? Well, the word of God. When was the word of God with God? Well, he was always there. Was there ever God without the word of God? No. But the Genesis account only goes so far. Genesis talks about the creation of the physical universe. Genesis is a very physical book. But John goes beyond the Genesis account of the physical universe. John begins to talk about the spiritual universe as well. He writes, in him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. So this has a couple of layers of meaning here. You know, there is a distinction between dead matter and living beings, and the difference, of course, is what we call life, and this life, we're told, is in Jesus. If you want to know how the physical universe came to be, you look to Jesus, but if you want to know how the physical universe came to be filled with living things, well, you have to look to Jesus, too. And it doesn't stop there because while there is dead matter and while there are living things like turtles and trees, there also are in the universe rational creatures, enlightened creatures, humans and angels, and Jesus is the source of that enlightening light as well. It is the rational light that shines into the irrational darkness. There is a three-tiered creation account going on here. First, the creation of the physical matter out of nothing. Please note that this is not the Big Bang. Okay, the Big Bang is matter out of matter. And then secondly, the creation of living beings out of dead matter. Please note, this is not the theory of evolution, which always has to begin with life to produce more life. And then third, there is the creation of rational souls in living beings. Who does this? Well, Jesus first, and then Jesus does the next thing, and then Jesus does the third thing. If Jesus had not been the creator of the universe, if Jesus had been just another traveling rabbi, uh, we wouldn't celebrate his birthday. The stories about the birth of Jesus are true, but they're not actually what is most important. A little earlier in this service, Jordan led us in a uh, reading of the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. That's a hard word to say, Constantinopolitan Creed, as our affirmation of faith. Uh, some of you know this as the Nicene Creed, which is sort of right. Uh, the Nicene Creed uh, dates from A.D. 325, uh, the version that we use ecumenically, which is the standard version, actually dates from 381. Um, and this creed, as, as Jordan pointed out to us, was the last creed that was affirmed by the entire church, both East and West. Throughout the history of the church, uh, the church has produced statements of faith, creeds, confessions, 
as a way of saying officially what it is that the church believes and the church teaches. All of these creeds and confessions are human attempts to state concisely and precisely what the Bible teaches. The Bible is the source of our truth, but it has 780,000 words in it. And so a, a little more concise statement of its essential teachings is helpful, particularly if you're trying to teach a convert or teach a child. In our denomination, in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, our doctrinal standard is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was written in London in 1641. It contains more than 12,000 words. So in the EPC, we also have a smaller document that we call the Seven Essentials, which uh, anyone who's ordained as a deacon or an elder must agree to without reservation. This past week, uh, our session, our Board of Ruling Elders, uh, met with the folks who had been elected uh, last month uh, as new elders and deacons, and we read over and carefully considered the seven essentials and the people who had been elected were asked can you affirm the seven essentials uh, without reservation now if one of those people had said well you know I like these six but that seventh one is not so good uh, we would have to say well then you can't be ordained creeds and confessions are how the church defines its boundaries and to be healthy and to be sane both as people and as institutions we need to have clearly defined boundaries we need to know who we are and so the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed was the last creed that was written and agreed to by the entire church and so I thought this morning we would take a little closer look at it to see what it says about this Jesus, this eternal Jesus. You have it there in your bulletins. I would invite you to open it up in your bulletins. We're going to work uh, down through this a little bit at a time. It begins, we believe in one God. Well, maybe that doesn't surprise you, but it must have been a shocker to the Greek and the Roman pagans. Just one God? How is that possible? But as Christians, we think there is one and only one God. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Now it is interesting that Jesus consistently calls God his Father. It sets a tone to our religion. Our love and our worship and our adoration are directed not at some kind of alien creature out there in the universe, the one that we worship is in fact a member of our family. Or maybe a more accurate way of putting that is we are a member of his family. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Yes, there are things that have been created that are invisible. Not everything that God made can be detected by the instruments of science. There are real things outside of the scope of the natural sciences. The natural sciences are a wonderful human enterprise, but they only cover a portion of reality. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Now this word Christ connects us to the Old Testament for Christ is the Greek name for the Messiah who was foretold by the prophets. We as Christians cannot be Christians without the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, begotten and not made. You see here in the minds of the people who were writing this creed a struggle to understand or to explain who Jesus is because he's the Son of God, he's begotten but he's not created, but he is begotten before there is time, so he's not part of the temporal order. He is before the ages. He is in eternity past, and he is begotten of the Father. Not created, not made. Light of light, true God of true God, of one essence with the Father by whom all things were made. The writers of the creed are piling on here. They're wanting to be sure to capture the unity between Jesus, the Word of God, and the Father. Jesus is true God. He's not sort of God. He's not just a superhuman. He's really God. And by Jesus' light of light, true God of true God, everything that has been made was made. Yes, the church has always taught that Jesus is the creator of the universe. Anything less would be less than Christian. And here's the part that I want you to pay attention to. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, begotten and not made, light of light, true God of true God, of one essence with the Father by whom all things are made. Here it is. Who for us men and women and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Now a lot of that language is very familiar to you from the Apostles' Creed. There you've got the little litany of the historical facts uh, surrounding the life of Jesus, that he was incarnate, the Virgin Mary, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. Those are all of the historical facts that are communicated to us in the gospel. But what I want you to notice is the very first line of that section, who for us men and women and for our salvation. This is the explanation of why all of those other things happen. Who for us men and women and for our salvation came down from heaven? Why did Jesus come down from heaven? For you and for your salvation. Why was Jesus incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and why did he become man? For you. And for your salvation, why was he crucified under Pontius Pilate? Why, why did he suffer and why was he buried? Well, for you and for your salvation. Why did he rise again on the third day? For you, for your salvation. Why did he ascend into heaven and why does he sit at the right hand of the Father? For you 
and for your salvation. And why will he come again with glory to judge the living and the dead? For you. For your salvation. Jesus, who is the creator of the world, who was present with the Father from eternity past, came into this world to seek and to save sinners. That's what Christmas is all about. The only reason that Jesus needed to come into this world was to seek and to save sinners. And Jesus then dies a sinner's death on a cross so that sinners could be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the whole purpose of why the Christmas story happens. This morning we gather after our weeks of preparation and we gather here on this Christmas morning and we repeat the story that we've heard generation after generation of God sending his son into the world to become flesh. We repeat the story because it is true historically, but there is a connection to something that's larger that's going on here, to something that's eternal that's going on here, and the eternal truth that is going on here has to do with the salvation, with the seeking and the saving of sinners. This morning my prayer for you is that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you know him not just as an interesting historical figure, but that you recognize that he is true God of true God, that he was present with the Father since before the foundation of the universe, that he is from everlasting to everlasting. I hope that you know him as the Savior of your soul, that you've placed your faith and your trust in him, that he bears your sins that you can't pay for yourself. My hope is that this is a real Christmas for you this day. Let us pray. Father God, from before all time, you had us in mind. And when the time was right and when the time was ripe, you sent your son into this world to seek and to save those who were lost. And that was us. We thank you for coming into this world. We thank you for speaking your truth in our hearing. We thank you for dying on the cross to pay for our sins. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to your Father, and we thank you for your love for us. We pray this morning that you would give us a, a fuller sense of who you are and a truer and a deeper appreciation of who you are. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit so that we can cling to you in faith and in trust so that we might know you as Lord and Savior. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.